you guys did good. You, you sang all my favorite songs. I'll, I'll give you a list for next time, too. It's awesome. Well, hi, everybody. How many of you are foreigners? Wow. Where's the rest of our people? I guess you guys celebrated Easter another day, right? Like yesterday. Wasn't Australia Easter yesterday or something? I can always tell because my friends are wishing me Easter on the wrong day. And I'm like, mm-hmm, foreigners. And I noticed that no one from England actually celebrates 4th of July. <laughs> I was in England in 4th of July, at 4th of July. Just noticed no one was very excited about it. But anyway. Um, I, I just have a prophetic word for somebody before we start. Um, your first name's Harold, but you go by your middle name. Is that somebody in this room? Your first name's Harold, but you go by your middle name. If that's you, would you stand up? Is that you right there, sir? Awesome. What's your middle name? Okay, that's right. <laughs> Even if I had a different one, that's right. Um, I, 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 uh, two things I wrote down for you. First of all, God says that you're a shepherd of his people and that he's given you anointing to feed and care for his people. And there's some kind of uh, counseling and consulting, uh, a mantle on you to consult and to counsel. And I see that you um, help people come into a place of wholeness and a place of wealth. Second thing is, um, I, I, out of the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6, you probably want to read the story because I'm just going to give you a few highlights. Are you familiar with the story of uh, Gideon's story? Okay. Um, in, in the story of Gideon, um, the, the uh, Israelites are oppressed by the Mennonites. Mennonites. Mennonites, not the Mennonites. The Mennonites, they're awesome people. The Mennonites. And they're burning down their fields. And, these, and, and, uh, and Gideon is pressing wheat in a wine press. And the Lord says that this is the day of vindication and recompense for you and your family. And the Lord says he calls you Gideon and everything that's been taken from your family tree and specifically uh, stolen and robbed from you and your children. This is the day that begins the day of vindication and recompense. And the Lord says that his interest rate is seven times. 700%. And what the enemy stole from you is coming back with interest. God kind of interest. And, uh, and it's spe specifically about your children, that the Lord is doing this thing with your children. And he said, if I told you about it, you wouldn't even believe it. And so I just release a day of vindication and recompense that you will be shown and you will be vindicated You'll be shown as being uh, not just right, but righteous, as innocent, as a man that, um, that, that forgives and, uh, and that receives back 700% um, interest in Jesus' name. Lots of good words. Awesome. Grab a hand. Let's pray. You can get a date this way, too. So we're going to multitask. For the married people, we're praying. And for the single people, squeeze the hand of the person next to you if you need a date. So Lord, we just pray. We pray for the single people to get a date. And we also pray for the message to be anointed, both of those. And we know you can multitask. This is the female side of God. We bless the female side of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, thank you. I've had a theme kind of going through my heart for actually several months, and um, so this, is, uh, this uh, message will, be, um, will have some commonness in the sense that uh, probably some, of, especially our students, have heard not necessarily this message, but the theme. I want to talk about perseverance today. And uh, I, I want to just, um, uh, can you um, have the wind down clock set for an hour, please? I get in heavenly places and become no earthly good at some point, <laughs> or preach so long that no one else is. Um, so, I, so I want to talk about perseverance. I, um, I've kind of been on this subject, in and out of this subject, for probably two years, 
And, um, and, I, and I, really, um, I really believe that heaven supports perseverance. And uh, I want to, you know, every generation has, I, I believe that every generation has something that God does uniquely in that generation that they are to pass on to the next generation. Um, there's a, a letter, I think Bill was the first one that I ever heard read this letter, um, uh, this quote from uh, John Adams a couple of years ago or something. And uh, I got on the uh, internet and I started to um, look into that. This was actually a letter that John Adams wrote to his beloved Abigail on May 12, 1780. And by the way, some of their letters, the interchange between Abigail and, uh, and John Adams has become some of the finest historic um, uh, documents of that time. But he wrote this. He said, I must study politics and war that my sons may have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural science, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children the right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, tapestry, and porcelain. There's uh, such a beauty in the way that John Adams thought that he said, I'm laying a foundation that my, the next generation will build on. And they will lay a foundation that the next generation will build on. And we won't, uh, we won't build the same thing, but we'll build on, the, on one another's foundation. I think that, you know, I, I'm not the kind of person... I mean, I, 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 I'm not, it's not even in me to think, man, you know what, if, if this generation could just do what our fathers did, you know. Or, you know, the, oh, boy, the good old days... I had my fill of the good old days, and I like the now old days. And people used to say things like, you know, boy, back then, they used to really build cars. Well, I was in the automotive business, and I'll tell you, I liked those cars because they provided a really good living for me. I got out just in time when the cars started getting really good, and uh, when they lasted 100,000 miles without an oil change or without a you know, tune-up, and I'm like, okay, it's time for me to get out, because... John Adams taught his son some stuff that they're doing that's kind of wrecking my business. But I, so I, I'm not the, I, I am, I'm really excited for the generations that are coming. I, you know, I have kids and grandkids and, and uh, everybody that's on, on this front row. We're always talking about succession and giving to the next generation something that, um, that we didn't have and, and encouraging the next generation to go beyond us. And that's, that language is, it's in our daily, it's in our weekly meetings. I, I don't, know that at least a month goes by that we don't have a deep conversation about how we can empower the generations that are coming. It's just, it's just become such a part of our everyday thinking that typically when we're talking about something we're going to do today, it comes up. Like, okay, so how is this going to benefit the next generation? What does succession look like? What does sustainability look like? So we have these conversations all the time, and everybody, um, everybody on our team is excited, the young people are excited about what they're going to leave the next generation, which is a real sign that they already have a, a legacy mentality. And so we're, we're excited about that. So I, 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 and I, I think that this generation, um, this 21st century generation, is the most creative, innovative, and inventive generation that's ever graced the planet. Does anybody have any doubt that they will find a cure for cancer, eradicate poverty, and, and create a global community that embraces peace? Does anybody have a doubt? I mean, can, you can just see where we've gone in 50 years. I mean, just expand that for 50 more, if you like, statistics, and you just see a generation that is going to go where no generation has ever gone before. I mean, I get an iPhone, and the thing, three years later, you know, the IT department's like, you need to get that thing's outdated. <laughs> like I just paid it off. <laughs> I, I mean, just things are just moving so fast, and everybody is wanting to do not just the next thing, but the new thing. And I read an, uh, an article recently. Um, I forget where I, or I read it. Somebody sent it to me, and they said that the internet will become obsolete in ten years. The internet. I'm like, I'm just getting to use it. <laughs> not too fast. So I'm excited for what this generation is already entered into and the excitement that they have over creativity. It's, it's so, it so mimics, if you will, the image that John Adams had about the future, that he studied war so that his 
kids could study mathematics and, and geography, and the next generation studying poetry and music and architecture, and in our generation, technology is just taking off to, is to I, I don't know if anyone could ever, you know, 20 years ago could have even predicted anything like this off the graph growth. And it's exciting, and it's, 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 sometimes it's scary. But, but what's important, one of the things that's important is that as each generation grows, that it doesn't leave the foundation that was given to it. Malachi talked about this when he said, in the last days I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet, he will restore the hearts of sons to fathers and fathers to sons. At least I smite the nation with the curse. What is the curse Malachi is specifically talking about? He's talking about what happens when you separate the generations. When you separate, when you separate the generations, you end up with a, with a generation that instead of living in inheritance, they're actually the highest level of life is, is, is um, sowing and reaping. How many understand sowing and reaping means you got what you worked for? But inheritance means you got what someone else worked for. And the goal is to get what someone else worked for. The goal is to get an inheritance and, and sow and reap until you leave a bigger inheritance to the next generation. And you use some of what you got. How many know your money learns to make money? And so it's not just you making money, but your money makes money. And I'm not just talking about money, of course. I'm just using it as a way to actually to describe what it looks like to leave an inheritance for your children's children. But the, the, the greatest challenge, I think, is for people who didn't work for something to value what they got for free. John Maxwell said it this way. He said, don't take down the fence until you know why it's there. Um, Proverbs says it this way, don't remove the ancient boundaries of your forefathers. And sometimes it's hard, to, it's hard to value something you didn't fight for. And sometimes we take away things that actually, you know, generations died before us. And suddenly the things that now are in place to keep people from those diseases are, be, are under fire. And it's like, I, I, I'm not saying anything about, I don't have a position on that. I'm simply saying, if we forgot where we came from, we don't know how we got here. <laughs> and it's kind of important that in the, midst of, in, of, in the midst of us growing the next thing, that we don't forget the last thing. <laughs> that we, it's important that we remember history, not so we repeat it, but so that we don't repeat it, and so that we're thankful for what got us here. So the values that our forefathers instilled in us need to be values that we carry into, as, you, as in John Adams' example, that we carry into, the, into the, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we carry in these values. We carry these values into every generation. Perseverance is one of those values that our forefathers, they didn't have to want to learn it. <laughs> Uh, I know there's a better way to say that. Our grandparents, our great-grandparents, depending on how old you are, our grandparents and great-grandparents, they didn't have to say, I value perseverance. Perseverance was, it was, it was, they were pushed into situations where it was climb or die. And so um, my grandfather would tell me stories about the Great Depression, about standing in line for work, there would be two or three hundred men in line. He would stand in line and they would choose 20. And every day you would, you know, you're, you, when you said you can't find a job, you weren't talking about you can't find a job that you'd like. <laughs> you're talking about you can't find a job to feed your family. And families moved in with one another and created communities. And there'd be four or five or six families in a very small house because they had to survive. And we talk about you know, things are getting bad. We mean, you know, the stock market dropped for four days and oh my God, what are we going to do? The whole world's coming to an end. But our forefathers knew a very different world. My grandmother tells me of a day when she actually had to go to work. Now, how many understand that women worked in the home and that's as hard work as you can get and as valuable work as ever's been done? So I want to be clear. So when I say go to work, I understand that you understand what I'm talking about. But my grandmother talks about a time when they, run out of, they ran out of ammunition and the men were, most of the men were on the battlefield and so they actually nearly drafted the women into the factories so that they could actually make weapons so that our men on the field would have weapons. 
And you can imagine that they were coming out of the agricultural age, so they had large families, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 children, because the children worked in the fields. And by the way, we look at the Chinese and we're like, child labor. I hate to tell you, but this country was built on child labor. <laughs> and I understand it can be abused, but I'm saying, you know, you forget 100 years ago, every child labored. And the reason why you get, you know, reason why, you know, still to most, most schools to this day have the summers off is because if they didn't have the summers off, no farmer would have sent his, his kid to school because they used the kids to harvest. That's why, they have the, that's, why, that's why we have summers off and not two weeks. That's why we don't have two weeks off every month or two weeks off every, you know what I'm saying, two weeks off every, two, every quarter because the farmers needed their kids to harvest. I, I'm, just, I'm not saying we should do that. I'm just saying we need to for, not forget, like the country was built on child labor. So we look at other countries that are in a different age and we're like, look what they're doing. It's like, yeah, their kids are learning to work. <laughs> Ours are learning video games. <laughs> I understand the abuse of laws. And, and, you know, when we went to the, from the agricultural age into the industrial age, we took the values of the agricultural age and we superimposed them over the industrial age. How many understand the kids worked in the fields in the agricultural age? That's why we had 12 kids. And all of a sudden, when the, our ladies, when our, when our mothers and our women went to work in the factories, there was no such thing as daycare. What did they do with all the children? I'm simply saying that perseverance was required. <laughs> it wasn't a choice. My, 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 uh, they rationed tires. Did you know that? During my grandfather's day, you couldn't just go buy tires. You, you, you swapped tires with people until you could buy some tires because they actually ran out of rubber. These are, these are like real, like this really happened. And it, it, it didn't happen very far from you. And what I'm getting at is that people paid a price to get you what you have. <laughs> Perseverance was, right, was, was bred into every single person. And what I'm getting at is this. What if you took this generation, this 21st generation, 21st century generation, and you inspired in them and imparted in them the same values that were instilled in us? In God. That were instilled in our grandparents in God. What would happen if you had the genius of the 21st generation with the values of the generations, as John Adam put it, that fought wars? I love I love the story of Solomon. I love Solomon. I just finished Proverbs. Uh, I read Proverbs for uh, two or three weeks the last month, just in my normal, in my just my devotional time. I love Solomon. But the challenge is that Solomon wasn't a warrior. He was a peacekeeper. Well, he was first was a peacemaker, but he came, but he became a peacekeeper because he didn't like war. And the way he kept the peace was to marry foreign wives who eventually stole his heart. Thus he wrote Ecclesiastes. <laughs> How many know Ecclesiastes was never written to be true? It was written to show you. See, Proverbs is written to show you what happens when a man with the gift of wisdom has a relationship with God. But Ecclesiastes is written to show you what happens when a man with the gift of wisdom loses a relationship with God. Some of the things he said are true and some are not. Like everything is vain. Animals and people go to the same place. In Proverbs, he's, in Proverbs, he writes, a righteous man gives an inheritance to his children's children. In Ecclesiastes, he writes, why should I give an inheritance to my son, to my sons? What if they're fools? And what I'm getting at is what happens when a man forgets what got him there? <laughs> What happens when David dies and he loses touch with his history and he forgets that it took perseverance, it took virtues and values. See, Solomon was great at teaching wisdom. He just wasn't great at living it. 
Thus, we have a, a really, really smart man who has no virtues at the end of his life. Because he forgot what it took to get there, and he made peace with the very thing his father warred for. See, it's really important that we, re, that we understand history, not so that we can repeat history, but so that we don't. And so that we understand the cost of those who went before us, so we hang on to those values and we bring them into the new thing. Thus that we don't have to return, metaphorically speaking, to the agricultural age to learn them ourselves. I think one of the greatest virtues that my grandfather taught me as a non-believer, and later my grandfather was a believer the last year of his life, angels taught him the Bible. They visited him every day for six months and taught him the Bible. True story. When my grandfather went blind because of a tumor who, that, um, behind his optical nerve, he finally died of it. Six months after he got saved, No, I'm sorry. When my grandfather got saved, two weeks later, angels began to talk to him, meet him in his bedroom, two of them. He had their names, and they taught him the Bible. He had never read the Bible in his entire life. He had never been to church. Six months into the angels teaching him the Bible, he went completely blind and couldn't read. So my grandfather had all of us children. He was a patriarch. We were Spanish. (laughs) How many Latin people we have in here? Como estas? That's all I know of Spanish right there. I I moved right into uno, dos, tres after that. But right after my... So my grandfather, we have a patriarchal family. I grew up in a patriarchal family. My grandfather, whoever's the oldest, was in charge of the family. You went to my my grandparents' house for Christmas and and, uh, Thanksgiving, whether you wanted to or not. It's just the way it was. And if you were going to buy something or do something, you went to speak to my grandfather out of honor. It's the way I was raised. So my grandfather had a lot of, if you will, respect and in some ways control over our family. So when my grandfather went blind, he ordered all of us kids and grandkids to read the Bible to him 12 hours a day, six days a week. My whole family wasn't saved. They were reading my grandfather the Bible in two-hour shifts. (laughs) Thus to say, my grandfather's probably watching from heaven right now, laughing. My family still talks about those years. I thought my grandfather was going a little crazy. I think my grandfather was going a little wisdom. But my grandfather taught me perseverance from the time I was a little boy. He said, real men don't give up. And then later on, I received Jesus and I read it in the Bible. That God's people don't give up. In uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul writes, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. How many know in order to have a Sunday, you have to have a Friday? Today we're celebrating Easter, but it was for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He endured the cross. And before there can be a resurrection, there has to be a crucifixion. And what I'm getting at is this, is that Jesus, in in pain in the Garden of Gethsemane, which I was there this, this year in Israel, first time I've ever been to Israel, went to the garden where Jesus prayed. One of the spots where, where it, they're actually sure that this is where Jesus prayed. Where he, where he actually sweat blood because he was persevering, pushing his way through death into the cross. Now there's just something about perseverance. I, I believe that perseverance is rooted in hope. It's hope that causes people to actually persevere. It's not just like anything. It's like for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's something about, persever- something about hope that actually causes perseverance to be rooted in you. It's something about seeing the future that causes you to be able to pay the price for, in the present for something you can have in the future. I, one, one of the concerns I have is that 
in, in a generation where we have instant everything. And again, I've made these comments before because they just keep coming in my spirit. Maybe it's because I have eight grandchildren and I'm trying to teach these values. The values my grandfather taught me, I'm trying to teach to a generation that, that grew up in wealth. And I'm like, these, these, I have deep concerns that these things are bred into, that these, these values that we learn through trials actually get bred into people so they don't actually have to have the trials to actually have the victories. That they don't actually have to have the trials to have the character. I, I'm not sure that it's 100% like that, but perseverance feeds hope and hope feeds perseverance. Isn't that interesting? That perseverance feeds hope. It's like, like hope feeds perseverance because I, I, I see something ahead and I hope for it. And how many know hope feels, faith sees, and love never fails? I begin to hope, I begin to feel like something good's about to happen and that helps me push through the hard times. But how many know pushing through the hard times is also what gives me hope for the next time? There's something about the ecosystem when I refuse to quit that actually gives me hope for the next time I need hope. (laughs) I don't know that makes sense, but it doesn't in words. Jesus said this, Luke 9, 62, chapter 9, verse 62. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This is all about perseverance, isn't it? It's all about once you put your hand to the plow, you stop counting. You stop counting your, your regrets. You stop counting the what ifs. Well, maybe I should have. You just put your hand to the plow and you move forward. I love when Elijah calls Elisha. Elisha has 24 oxen, 12 sets of oxen, and he's plowing the field. And Elijah goes and throws his mantle on Elisha. And Elisha says, wait, let me, let me, let me go see my father and... I'll, I'll, I'll come and follow you. And Elijah says, to him, Elijah says to him, what did I do to you? What did I do to you? And the first thing he does, Elijah, Elisha, the younger, is he goes back and he slaughters his 24 oxen. What's he doing? He's burning his bridges. He can't look back. He's got no plan B. The, this isn't just about oxen. This is his business. He sold his tools, if you will. He sold his business. He can't go back. He doesn't know where he's going, but he knows where he can't stay. He knows where he really can't stay now. He burned the ships, as the Spanish say. He can't retreat because there's no way to get back. And there's something about this perseverance that says, if this way doesn't work, there is no other way. I think talent is seen in the first quarter of a basketball game, but capacity relates to the last quarter. A lot of times, I love basketball and, and, and football. Woohoo! Go Warriors. I also like the Cavaliers, sorry. I guess I have a plan B. Perseverance is not working in my basketball. I, I love basketball, and you know, oftentimes we find that between the first place team and the last place team, there's not a lot of difference sometimes in talent. I notice oftentimes the first, the last place team, or one of the last place teams, the lower teams, will play the better team, and the first quarter they'll often be closer, even ahead. Second quarter, often the same, but the last quarter, the way they end the game. <laughs> oftentimes is the difference between talent and capacity. And perseverance breeds capacity. I think, it, I think it was Eric and I were talking this week, and we were just talking about our teams and how we choose teams, and we were interacting about qualities that we like in people, uh, qualities we look for in people. And I was sharing with him, in fact, we were in agreement. I said, I, I always choose people who have capacity. I find that sometimes the most talented people aren't necessarily the people that can take much pressure. And I, and I find that I'd rather have somebody who's not quite as talented, but that actually has capacity, that presses in, that doesn't quit, that doesn't give up, that doesn't retreat when something goes wrong. They stay there. I don't like to look at an application, I'm sorry if this is you, and it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. But I don't like to look at an application when I hire someone, and I've hired probably 3,000 people over the last 38 years, 
even before that I hired for my boss. And I, I don't like to look at an application where someone's been here for two years and here for two years and here for two years, even if they were the head of everything. There's something about people who stay. I'm not saying it's always right. I'm just saying I like to see people who stay, people who work through their stuff, people who don't, God doesn't take them someplace else because he's taking them someplace else. And sometimes I say to people, why did you leave? And say, well, God, God took us. I said, well, if God wasn't there, who, why did you leave? <laughs> and typically we find, well, this relationship, this thing doesn't go in the way I want it. And I understand that. And by the way, you know, I've left before. So I get it. Uh, no combination. My point is, is that there's something about staying. <laughs> there's something about steadfastness. There's something about pushing through the problems and not running away when things get tough. I think that covenant is rooted in perseverance. I think, I think covenant is rooted in perseverance. It's the vows we repeat are the fruit of that. I, I don't know, I've been to a lot of weddings, maybe they don't repeat these vows in every wedding, but someplace, even people who write their own vows, and we've had that, the people do that a lot, they typically leave this line in, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do part us. There's something about saying to somebody, I'm with you until we both leave the planet. <laughs> that actually takes perseverance. I am trying my best. <laughs> you know, we make choices and then those choices eventually make us. In Luke chapter 11 Verse 9, I, I think John also picks up the same theme. At least one of the other Gospels do. He said, I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. We, we know from many teachers that that word ask means keep on asking. Seek means keep on seeking. Knock means keep on knocking. It's, it's, it's actually, Jesus is actually saying in, in our language, don't give up. Well, I knocked. What do I do? Keep knocking. <laughs> well, I asked. Keep asking. <laughs> well, I sought. Keep seeking. <laughs> I, I am a, I mean, I know why people do it, but I, I am, I am I, I'm no longer surprised. But often I get questions asked on Facebook in our, with our students and people in our congregation. And can I ask you some questions? Yeah, sure. Let's talk. So it's like, you know, I've been praying for this thing and, and I, I, I got this prophecy and I got these five confirmations and I've been praying and it's just like, I just don't know what to do. It's like, it's just not happening. Well, how long have you been praying? Four months. <laughs> Four months. I, mean, I have to work hard to keep a straight face. Four months. I mean, people tarried for four years to get the Holy Spirit baptism. In Bill's day, he tells me stories where people... Terry, they call it Terry, they call it praying through, right? Praying through. The Pentecostals call it praying through. They would literally pray day and night for years just to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we're like, okay, come up here, get, get the baptism. Did you get it? No, okay, try it again. <laughs> Third time's a charm, it always works. Okay, shut up, my yakata. <laughs> Somebody doesn't get it, like, you know, in a five minute prayer, you're like, wow. Okay, let's try it again. There's anticipation. It's like people tarried so that we could step into it. But the challenge is, is that something about the supernatural culture, the idea of the instant sometimes takes away the value for the process. I notice that God often takes a long time to act suddenly. We get to be in on some of the testimonies. And people like, a guy prayed for me, and I pulled my knee. Wow, it sounds good. It's like, just like that. But what you don't know is he's been coming for 10 years up to the front to get prayed for. And, and it's people who have a bum knee or whatever their problem is, they're like, huh, I've been coming for six months and nothing happened to me. I don't know what to do. Keep coming. This isn't brain surgery. Like, just keep coming. Like, I'm telling you that that the kingdom honors perseverance. There is, I'm telling you, like the kingdom honors, I said it already, anyway, I'm repeating myself. <laughs> I do that, I do it in conversations too, and I don't think you heard me. <laughs> the kingdom honors perseverance. 
that we're, we entered a kingdom that isn't just righteousness, peace, and joy. It's perseverance. There's something about perseverance that the angels honor. I think that, I, think, I don't know, this, isn't, this is just my own thoughts. Not in the Bible. Sometimes I think the angels look down and man, that guy's been working so hard. Just please help him. Don't somebody help him. <laughs> he looks like he's trying so hard. I don't know, that's the value I have for my grandkids. Maybe I'm superimposing over the angels, but you know, my grandkids are like, ha, oh, I tried, didn't work. I'm like, keep trying. But when they're out there in a hot sun digging all day, I'm like, here's your 20 bucks, kid. You did good. Even if you didn't do good. It's like that he sweat his butt off to try. It's something in trying that is rewardable. I don't know. You, are you with me? It's something in trying, even if he didn't accomplish it, it's something in trying that's just rewardable. It's Cornelius's, you know, angel visitation where he says, your prayers and your alms have been heard and they become a memorial before God. It's something, not your prayer, your prayers. <laughs> not your offering, your offerings. Your life of giving has finally caught God's eye. <laughs> I mean, Luke 18 is one of the most amazing stories. My grandfather Clutter told me this story. I could just picture him with no teeth. Just telling the story. My grandfather didn't have teeth. Yeah. He had four teeth and he always went. <laughs> Luke 18. Now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Okay, why do you tell them the parable? Okay, okay. Now he was telling the parable for a reason. To show them that they should at all times what? Pray and not lose heart. Okay, saying in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Doesn't get worse, right? There was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while, he was unwilling. But afterwards, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God, nor do I respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she'll wear me out. <laughs> Listen to this. I love this part. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God... Now will not God bring justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night, and he will not delay over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice quickly. Now how many, how many know quickly is in the context of she tried a lot? So your quickly and his quickly aren't the same. Are you with me? Now look at this. Now the next verse. This is all connected. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Oh, wait a second. How did we get to the subject of faith? He ties faith directly into the woman who wouldn't quit. And why did he tell that story? So that you would learn to pray and, come on, not lose heart. And so he said, here's a woman. She just kept going back to the judge. And the judge was wicked. I mean, not like God. He's righteous. And, and his point is, if a wicked judge will listen to a widow then certainly a righteous judge will listen to you if you keep praying. But then he says, well, I wonder if there will be faith on the earth. In other words, I wonder if anyone will really persevere. This is the kingdom. Sometimes the side effects of a life of miracles is the inability to embrace suffering, press through hard times, and give ourselves until it costs, until it costs us something. The Solomon generation cannot forget the David generation. Or we end up keeping our stuff as a peacemaker, keeper, keeper, instead of a peacemaker. That we sacrifice everything our fathers worked for. Because we hate conflict, we hate suffering, we hate perseverance, we hate, we, we hate having to try hard. It's the side effect of everything being handed to you. Several Christmases ago now, we, we bought our kids, grandkids, like you couldn't even see the tree almost. Well, you couldn't see the tree if we would have taken the presents from downstairs and put them upstairs. The kids make a list every year. 
And Kathy goes through the whole list and buys them nearly everything, which I think is sick. It's a point of conflict in our marriage. So she had bought them, you know, she tries to spend equally on them, and it's like a lot of money. So we're opening all the gifts, and, you know, and I just, I love, I love to give, so it's really, I love Christmas. I love, I, I love Christmas more, more than any other holiday. I love Christmas so much. I think I reminisce of my, of, you know, being a kid. You know, we, we weren't raised with much, so Christmas was really cool. Like, you usually got one really cool gift, you know? And, and, some, and then, then the fun of everybody celebrating is fun. So I love Christmas. And so, you know, watching my kids open, my grandkids open gifts, oh, I just get tears in my eyes. I just, I love the Christmas story, but I actually love this a lot. So this is about five years ago. You know, we got done with Christmas and, you know, I was at my house and there's boxes everywhere and stuff everywhere and trash everywhere. And, you know, and one of my grandkids said, I asked for, and I forget what it was, and I didn't get it, and started to cry. Ooh. That did not go over very well with my spirit. I didn't say anything, which surprises everybody on the front row. <laughs> That's maturity right there. A little bit of Bill got on me, and I just kept it inside. Probably didn't do what Bill does, but he keeps it inside, though. And I percolated all year. And I said to my wife, this year we get one gift, a nice gift, but they buy gifts for some poor folks. And Chris gave me some names. And we take the gifts to the poor folks. That's what we're going to do. Because my kids have forgotten where their grandma and grandpa came from. So we took the kids to the poor folks. Chris picked a perfect couple of houses. We knew went to one apartment, knocked on the door. My kids, of course, didn't want to come like, hey, no, 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 you're missing the point. This ain't for me. I grew up here. <laughs> come here. So they came to the door. They were, of course, a little nervous. Chris had it all set up, so they knew we were coming. They opened the door, and there had to be 12, 14 kids little kids in this house. Of course, they invited us in. Needless to say, they won't forget that Christmas, and neither will I. Sometimes you have to visit the place where it all started so you have appreciation for how you got here. You know, I, I have, uh, being a grandparent is the best thing that's ever happened in my life. I love being a parent, but that sucks compared to being a grandparent. <laughs> being a grandparent is so much better. <laughs> and you know, the truth is, when my kids were growing up, we didn't have a lot. You know, the Johnsons, all, all of us, we, were, you know, we, we, were, we weren't like poor like we didn't have food. Uh, just be clear, we, we weren't poor like we didn't have food. We always had food. And, uh, and, if, and, and if one of us didn't have food, we just, lent food to, we just gave food to the others. You know, that we just kind of grew up communally, so it was all part of it. So we, we weren't, I want to be careful, like, we weren't poor, poor, you know. But uh, I forgot what I was going to say. But it was awesome growing up poor. <laughs> oh, I know what I was going to say. So my kids were, weren't, my kids were not raised in prosperity. They were raised in lower middle class and had, you know, they had what they needed and most of the time they had what they wanted, but it wasn't like you could have anything you wanted. So my grandkids are growing up in prosperity, which is so interesting because I always thought that if I had a bunch of money when my kids were young, I would give them everything. And now I have the ability to do that and I'm afraid that I would give them into a different attitude. I never understood that when I didn't have enough. But now I'm like, I'm more concerned about your attitude than how much stuff you have. Perseverance. 
Danny told this story. I, I, I'm only repeating it by memory, so the facts, you'll have to listen to Danny's message. But he's talking about, we, we've all been to Round Mountain, Nevada. Our teams have all been to Round Mountain, Nevada. It's this home of uh, Steve Backlund, where Steve Backlund came from. And the entire, uh, you, you, you go down this highway, I forget what highway it is, but it's called the, it's called the loneliest highway in America. It says, loneliest, you have, when you turn onto it, it says, you've just entered the loneliest highway in America. And then you drive on that for four hours and you turn right and drive two more hours, three more hours on another road that's lonelier. (laughs) Am I not exaggerating, right? Lonelier. The only thing, I killed two rabbits there with my car. (laughs) And by the way, I'm zero with the gun and I'm three with my car. (laughs) That's another point of conflict with my wife. (laughs) I won't tell that story. I'm going down the loneliest, no, I turned off the loneliest highway to the loneliest, loneliest highway, and we're driving along, and there's nobody, and these guys will, even though I drive fast, they will, they will, uh, they will admit that there's not a lot, there's nothing to judge your speed. There's no houses, there's nothing, it's just straight, and it's perfectly straight, like you could fall asleep and wake up, and you wouldn't have hit anything. <laughs> so I will confess to 80. So I'm going about, and my wife, she's definitely, she should have been a police officer. <laughs> she's definitely, she's always like, that person broke the law. <laughs> Pharisee. <laughs> she's not though, because she keeps the law. She's really awesome. So I, I'm just toying with you a little bit. So we're driving along. She's like, slow down, slow down. I'm like, there's nobody out here. Slow down, slow down. So this rabbit runs out on the road. He fakes right, goes left. I thought he's going to go right, so I go left, and I run right over him. <laughs> and he goes flying, woo! <laughs> and she's all, you ran over that rabbit on purpose. <laughs> Why would I run over the rabbit on purpose? No, I didn't. You ran over that rabbit on purpose. I said, he faked right, he went left. You know, you have to know, Kathy doesn't get mad very often. You know, it's, it's kind of a monument when she's upset. So I'm driving along, and she's quiet over there, and I'm like, kind of, I'm trying to, like, put on some music she likes. And... Remember that song? Yeah. Okay. Is that the song that was in our wedding? Yeah. <laughs> About 20 minutes goes by, and another rabbit pops out. And I'm like, right. and he just jumps out of it. And I'm like, I got this one. He's going to fake life and go right. Fake right and go left. So I went right this time. I ran right over him again. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I mean, right over him. She's like, you ran over that rabbit. That two rabbit. You, ra- you killed two rabbits. <laughs> she would not talk to me all the way home. <laughs> he was convinced I hit the rabbits on purpose. You know, have you seen those rabbits? They go, what? And then they, oh, then they go that way. <laughs> I was trying to figure out, like basketball, what way he's going. I... So we've been going to Round Mountain for years, years and years. And it's just, all there is is a gold mine and a bunch of uh, house trailers. Uh, Mobile homes. It's just a mobile home town with about, I don't know, 4,000 people or something? 2,000 people? Yeah. And Steve had a church there, so we were there all the time. And Danny was telling this story. It's one of the largest gold mines in the world or in America. It's very large. It's huge gold mine. It's one, America gets a ton and tons of gold out of there. And it's, it's the only thing going there. And I guess a couple, Danny was telling the story a couple years ago, so it must be like four years ago, they found the largest mother load that's been found in this area. I think it might be in America. And when they found it, and, and they, they, they have these dump trucks. Have you ever seen these dump trucks? They're like, oh my goodness, the tires are taller than a human. They're just huge. They're just, they can't go on a highway. They're huge, t- these dump trucks. And uh, so th- this is like, um, I forget what they call it, like strip mining, right? They just have these huge tractors and they take out just thousands and thousands of tons of dirt every day, and they run it through these uh, conveyors. Well, they hit this mother load. The largest, it was the largest 
uh, a vein of gold that that company has ever hit. I know that for sure. And they found a tunnel, an ancient tunnel that miners had dug to the motherload. They dug it like two mile tunnel and they were a hundred feet short of the motherload. Wow. You remember that story? <laughs> Perfectly. Like, never give up. Oh, I've been praying and praying. Pray again. You might hit the mother load. Turn to Acts 14. I love this. I think Bill preached on this some time ago. At least this part. Verse 1. In Iconium, they're in, they, uh, speaking of uh, Paul and Barnabas, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testified of their word with his uh, word of his grace, granting them that signs and wonders be done through their hands. Did you get that? It says, they were preaching at this place, this place where there's Gentiles. Jews came down, stirred them up. So they got embittered against the apostles. Therefore, because they're embittered, they stayed longer. I mean, even, even us, even our teams were like, I'm not going back to that church. I don't know if I was very well received. <laughs> Paul's like, that's where the gold is. Where you're resisted. I'm convinced that the place of your resistance is your place of your destiny. As a matter of fact, I was... I was thinking about this today, and I was looking it up during worship. I just, about Gideon. Oh, let me, I'm, I'm getting past myself, but it's all right. In Judges chapter 7, verse 9, the Lord says, Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to Gideon, Arise and go against the camp, for I have given into your hands. But if you are afraid, go down to the camp and go with Piram, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they, are, what they say, and afterwards your hand will be strengthened that you may go against the camp. So, they went down with, so he went down with Piram, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was at the camp. Now when the Mennonites, Mennonites, you just don't use that word very often, and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sands of the seashore. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And he came to the tent and struck it. So it fell, and it turned it upside down, so the tent lay flat. His friend said, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Gideon and all the camp into his hand. You know, you want to know about your destiny? Sometimes you just need to ask the devil. Because I'm convinced that the devil knows more about your destiny than you do. You know how to know where your destiny lies? In the place that you're being resisted. And the idea isn't to back up. The idea is to move forward. (laughs) I believe that the devil fears you at your place of destiny. That's a good word. (laughs) Do you know Jesus, when Jesus got anointed in the wilderness, 40 days, it says he left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. He went into the wilderness by, led by the Spirit and he left in the power of the Spirit, right? From that day forward, everywhere Jesus went, the demons would go, hey, that's the Son of God. When Jesus beat the devil, the devil, in 40-day fast in the wilderness, all the other demons recognized him from then on. They're like, that's the Son of God. And Jesus would say, shut up. I mean, you know, they weren't telling lies, they were telling the truth. They fear you at your place of destiny. Back to Acts 14. Verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand up. Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw Paul, what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. 
And when they began, call, they began calling Barnabas Zia, Z, Zeus and Paul Hermas, two gods, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was outside the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes. I don't know why these guys, they always tear their clothes. <laughs> the, the prophets, you know, God falls on the prophets, they rip their clothes off and go around running around naked, and it was like supposed to be a positive thing. I mean, maybe when I was young, you know. I don't even do that at, in my bedroom. <laughs> no, I don't wear pajamas. Anyway, we're moving on. But when... <laughs> The old prophets all wore pajamas. (laughs) Okay, I'm trying to... Here we go. But when Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men. There's the same nature as you, preaching the gospel to you, that you should turn from vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in it. I love that. So here's these guys... Paul and Barnabas heal this man, this lame man, and the people get so rocked that they make gods out of them. They actually think they're two gods. The two gods they worship in that town, they think, well, our gods have come down, and they think Barnabas and Paul are their two gods, and they start to worship them. Verse 19, Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul. I mean, one day you're doing fine, and the next day you're doing time. <laughs> These same people who made gods out of them, one day later, stoned them in the streets. I would say the crowd is fickle is an understatement. Ah, there's so many things that come to my mind right now. I mean, you can't play the crowds. It's important that we love people, but if you, if you fear the people, you're not leading them, they're leading you. Seriously, I understand this is an extreme example, but, but one day the crowd loves you and the next day they hate you. Winston Churchill, I mean, if you studied any of these men, these women, Winston Churchill they beloved, was beloved during the war. After the war, they voted him out. And he was in a deep depression for two years, then they voted him back in because the war was on again. I'm just saying it's like it, the crowd is fickle. Perseverance is required to push through Dark seasons, also perseverance is required when people want to worship you. Uh, um, Metaphorically speaking, I'm saying when you have favor, you still need perseverance. And when you lose favor, that same perseverance will carry you. I love this. But the Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After that, they preached the gospel to the city and had made some disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to, uh, encourage them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. I don't know if you just got what just happened. They go to Iconium, to Lystra, I'm sorry, to Lystra. They heal a sick man. All of a sudden, they're gods. Some Jews come down and go, those guys aren't gods. Those guys are idiots. They stone him. They think he's dead. He leaves, goes to preach some other place. Then he goes back to Lystra where he got stoned and preached the gospel and made disciples and built a church there. To the place he was stoned. We're like, I don't know. I didn't feel very much favor there. <laughs> We're not talking about everybody should get stone stone. We're talking about rocks. He got rocks. Rocks. That didn't work either. I'm saying our forefathers understood something that my grandfather didn't understand. My grandfather understood something that I didn't understand. And this next generation doesn't understand what we understood. And I'm saying, perseverance is the way of the kingdom. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom. The kingdom, you know, the the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation has 12 gates made out of pearl. You know what pearls are made out of? Irritation. 
It's a metaphor. I'm not saying the gates are a metaphor, but I'm saying it's very prophetic that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom. I'm not preaching tribulation. I'm preaching hang on, push in, step in. It's keep knocking, keep asking, keep trying. Don't give up. You might be a hundred feet from the mother load. Who knows? Maybe today, maybe tomorrow. I got to pray for it. I don't know what to do. Just do it again. Jesus is standing on the shore. He's got his disciples out in the boat. Of course, the disciples don't know it's Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, have you guys caught anything? No, no, we haven't. Okay, well, cast your net on the other side. Peter says, we've been fishing all night. The connotation is, I think we tried both sides of the boat. We've been fishing all night. <laughs> we didn't catch anything on this side. I mean, I think we would have thought to try the other. I'm saying most of us want a new strategy. Sometimes it's not new actions. It's just renewed actions. Just do the same thing you were doing. Just do it again. Just do it again. Cast your... And Peter's like... We've been fishing all night. But at your bidding, we'll try the other side. You know the story. They cast the net on the side, and the nets begin to break. There's too many fish, and they need help. Hello? By the way, here's part two for another day. There's coming a time when we're actually going to have to have friends. (laughs) You're not going to be able to do it with your little boat. We don't have a little boat. We have a ship. You're not going to be able to do it with your ship. Your fellowship. You're going to need other fellowships to collaborate. Because the harvest is going to be too big. I really do feel like Danny's story about Round Mountain, although I hacked it. I really feel like it's a prophetic declaration for many of you in the room. In all seriousness, you're 100 yards from the mother load. You've been tunneling for years. You're just about to give up, and the Lord's like, no, no, oh, no, not, not now. You're almost there. And for all of us, no matter your age, perseverance is the way of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus began his ministry by saying, nobody who puts his hand in the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom. This is, his, this is some of his opening remarks. It's some of his first year of ministry. Listen, guys, if you're going to be with me, you're going to follow me. Peter, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I know you just left this, but if you look back, you're not worthy of the kingdom. Burn your boats kill your oxen, sell your business, don't have a plan B. This is how you grow in your, in your marriage. You don't have a plan B. I understand there's some really circumstances. I'm making a general statement. But when you come, let me say this, when you come to marriage, you never come with a plan B. You don't use the D word. That word's the worst word. It's worse than the F word. You don't use the D word in your marriage. No, I'm not joking. You don't use that word. You don't threaten it. You don't threaten it in an argument. You don't use that word. It's not, it's well, covenant. That D word is the opposite of covenant. You don't use that word. We, we press through, we work it out, and what we do, what we have to do to make it work. And we make covenants with the body. The body, how many understand, we, we weren't born in a, in a, in a conference. People don't come to church, they become the church. You don't choose the church by how good the nursery is. Use duct tape. If the nursery's bad, you can get duct tape in different colors. Put your kids on the wall, they look like wall art. No one will even know you're abusing them. That's a joke. Church was born in a covenant. Talked about it today. Crucifixion, resurrection, began with a covenant. And a covenant means we're here for life. Here for life. 
Would you stand? Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you. You're a God who honors your promises. And you said that every promise is yes and amen. And we receive the promises. Say, we are a people of promise. We are a people like Abraham. We look to the stars. We look to the sand of the sea. And we say, the nations are ours. You created us to make disciples of nations. And that's what we've come here, Lord. We've come here to serve you. We've come here to see the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. We're a victorious people. That's what we were born for. That's who we are. In the middle of the victories, there are battles. And Lord, we pray for strength for the battles. We know that there are people in this room that are, are that they're in the middle of a battle. And Lord, we, we bless them right now. We bless them with strength. We bless them with courage. We release hope over them. We pray for others to, round, to, to rally around them as they did in the book of Nehemiah, in families with swords and spears and bows and shields. Lord, we pray for that right now in Jesus' name, that those among us that are in the midst of battles right now, that are, they haven't yet received a victory, Lord, we pray that the body would rally around them and that we would be the people who celebrate their victories because we've had a part of them. And Lord, we pray for the discouraged and the disheartened tonight that might hear this word in a condemning way. Lord, we pray that you would give them a promise, that you would release hope to them, that you would remind them that's the joy set before them. Father, you would give them a joy that's set before them, that they could endure whatever it is that they're going through, and that it would pass quickly, that they would come out of this land of, of uh, whatever it is, Lord, this land of trouble, and that you would turn the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, into a stream, and that, Lord, that joy... Morning endures all through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And I pray for those who have been weeping and mourning, that you would turn their mourning into a spring, a spring of joy, a spring of peace. God, I pray for that in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for the young generation and the old generation and the medium generation and all the generations to join hands. I pray that we would be able to give to one another, that the, that the Lord, this this most amazing generation the planet has ever seen would take a hold of the older generation and that they would build foundations and collaborations and they would teach one another what they've learned in the kingdom. Lord, we bless the young, we bless the old, bless the middle-aged people, we bless the people who have gone before us who left us an inheritance and we thank you for them, God. People like my grandfather, my grandmother, we thank you, God, for people who labored that we might be in this place doing this thing tonight. We bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.